Hey, Max, do you know the real scary story for this time of year? No, what's that? The way kids are still taught about Thanksgiving in schools. Yikes. Hey everyone, welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And so yeah, today we are uh, doing our, I guess, Thanksgiving episode? Yeah, except much like doing Halloween stuff (laughs) the entire month of October, my book is not Thanksgiving themed. Well, I'm not sure... I could see it maybe being more difficult to find like a Thanksgiving themed horror book. That seems a little obscure. I did find a Christmas one though, and ooh boy, can't well, wait. Christmas horror is a big thing. There's like a there's like a whole genre about Christmas horror. Thanksgiving, there are there were a couple movies that I found, but I feel like you can make a horror movie about anything. And so people did. So I do have a Thanksgiving horror movie. It's kind of like porn. I think Thanksgiving for people is like scary enough because it's usually like sitting around with your family talking about things that nobody's going to agree on. And that one racist uncle. Yeah. I was lucky enough where our Thanksgivings usually, well, you know, I have some very big personalities in my family, but our Thanksgivings were never usually giant get togethers of family. It was usually like maybe like one aunt or something like that. Okay. But also, that still makes, like, 15 people. Well, yeah. I mean, I I do come from a big family. My Thanksgivings were four people maximum. Well, and obviously, I, as I've mentioned before, grew up in Michigan and have lived in New Orleans now for over 20 years. I don't go home for Thanksgiving or anything. So Thanksgiving now is usually us and then sometimes your family from Florida will come. Right? Yeah. No, we go there for Thanksgiving. Oh. My parents come here for Christmas. Oh, yeah. We did go there for Thanksgiving. Yes. But not this year. No. Coronavirus. Yeah. I mean, I've been, to be honest, I've never been a huge Thanksgiving person. So it just doesn't matter to me. See, I love Thanksgiving. (laughs) That's (laughs) That's because it's a holiday based on food. Yeah. Yeah, I used to, you know, I used to actually go up and visit uh, my friend Maxwell every year for Thanksgiving. I did that for a long time to either Boston or then he moved to New York. And that was fun, but not because it was Thanksgiving. It was just fun to see a friend that had moved so far away and, you know, whatever. Anyway. And then you became a boring married man and now you have to do what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, what you want to do is usually not boring, though. Because food is never boring. Yeah. But anyways, back on, I guess, theme. Also, a point out, I was, I've never been like that big on Thanksgiving. The story of Thanksgiving, although obviously as we are taught it, is not really like a happy story. So I've always had a little bit of an issue with this holiday. Like, I'm, I'm not like one of those people who's like, oh, this holiday is rooted in like terrible atrocities, which Thanksgiving 100% is. Yeah. To be clear, we're not like ignoring that here. And that's not why I don't like Thanksgiving, although if that were why I didn't like Thanksgiving, I would be perfectly justified in not liking it for that reason. I just don't really care that much about it. But 
it is kind of a weird thing. And, you know, like we just kind of passed uh, Columbus Day. It's kind of a similar situation, although I don't know. Yikes. We have, I mean, this country has problematic histories. Yeah. Oh, boy. But anyways, so the whole point of this is that I did find a Thanksgiving-themed horror movie. I just realized this episode is also being recorded before the election, but will air after the election. Oh. And Lord knows. I don't know. It's like a time capsule. I have no idea if I'm going to be happy or sad on the day that this is posted. Yeah, I honestly didn't even think about that. Because obviously, like, the election will have happened for a couple of these episodes, and we will have said nothing about it. Not that we get super political, but, like, yeah. So, hopefully, if you're listening to this, we have a brand new president on the way. That's all I'll say. Who knows? So, tell me about your movie. (laughs) Is there a sexy man in a pilgrim hat? There is a guy in a pilgrim hat. The main... Pilgrim is played by this actor, Peter Giles. He is actually pretty handsome for an older guy, and he's got this pilgrimy British accent, I guess. I don't know. This movie has no sex appeal to it. That's all I can say. I mean, the Pilgrims, that time period was not really about like sexiness and like showing off your body or anything. It was kind of about like covering up everything you could and being ashamed of like everything, of being a human being. I mean, basically, yes. And that kind of plays into it. The movie is called just, I don't think I even said it, it's called Pilgrim. So it obviously has pilgrims in it. Or, I mean, really not necessarily pilgrims, but like cosplayers who are real problematic. I was wondering if it was going to be like taking place back in the Okie Smoky days or like modern times. No, it takes place in modern times. Now, I wasn't sure when going into it whether there was going to be a supernatural element where, like, these are, like, actual pilgrims from those time periods. I do not think that's the case. I think they were just crazy people. But this movie, it kind of doesn't take itself very seriously. So I think it just doesn't care about explaining it. Yeah. Which is fine, honestly. I'll kind of give my, like, wrap up. But I will say going into it, two things. One, this movie came out in 2019. So last year. So I'm actually not going to say how it ends. But there is... There will be heavy spoilers, but I won't say the ending scene, which is actually pretty great and probably worth watching. And two, I thought I was going to find this movie to be kind of stupid, but I really didn't. It was actually kind of enjoyable, honestly. Like, I wasn't mad that I was watching it. And I'll talk about it a little bit more. But the actual plot synopsis slash spoiler part of this is going to be a little bit more limited. And honestly, so is the lead into it, because there's not a lot of like trivia or facts about this, but I will talk a little bit about it. This movie, okay, just getting into it, was part of the Into the Dark Horror Anthology, which is a web TV series produced for Hulu um, by a branch of Bloomhouse Productions. It's now had two seasons. I tried to see if it has gotten renewed for a third one. It didn't say. That might just not be known yet. The last few episodes of the current season actually were delayed due to the quarantine. So this is like a very like recent thing. Each episode of Into the Dark is a completely separate standalone horror movie. And it's an anthology, but not like horror story. Like, it doesn't use the same cast or anything. It has its own cast, different directors, things like that. Mm -hmm. But each episode does center around a different holiday. 
Ooh. Based on the month. So there's like a New Year's one, a Christmas one, an Easter one. Like every month has its own holiday theme. Oh, that's going to make this real easy for you <laughs> yeah, over fine. the next like year. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, with how decent this one was, and like I, I say decent, it's not the best thing I've ever seen by a long shot, but it was okay. And it was okay enough that I would watch other ones. Although considering it's all different writer directors and stuff, it's kind of like, I assume the quality will be somewhat similar, but the styles could be completely different. And when you look on sort of the ratings and reviews and stuff, there's like a, I saw this one graph of like how well certain episodes are rated and some of them are rated very high and some of them are like rock bottom bad. So yikes. Yeah. But this one, so this one was directed by Marcus Dunstan. He is a screenwriter and now obviously director. He is most famous for writing and directing the Collector series, which I don't think you're that familiar with. I no. no. And what does he collect? Uh, skeleton keys? People, I believe. I watched the first Collector a long time ago, but there is another a sequel to it called The Collection. And actually, in, there's a third installment called The Collected which is in pre-production. These are terrible names, by the way, because I don't think that you should call it... I don't think calling it collection... um, Sorry, collector, collection, and collected is good from a marketing standpoint because it all sounds so similar. Also, I would want it to be like collect, collecting, collected, like all kind of the same... Yeah. Like related parts of speech. And... Yeah, I mean, I can get that for sure. I just, I for some reason, I have an issue with it, but I don't really care. I think I did not look up the synopsis in these movies, but the col- it's kind of about like a serial killer, and I think he collects like people or like people's parts or something like that. Trophies. Yeah, which is good. He also wrote a screenplay for this movie called Feast, which I haven't seen, but I know of it. And then he wrote the screenplays for Saw 4, 5, 6, and Saw 3D. All right. Yeah. Which, to be honest, I could not... I I have seen most of the Saw movies. I really couldn't tell you which ones 4, 5, and 6 are. So I don't know if they're good screenplays. I feel like they're all... I say this as someone who has not seen any of them in their entirety. I feel like they're all probably pretty similar. It's just like various different games. Yeah, I think that's kind of what it turned into. To be honest, the first Saw is actually pretty good. It's It was kind of this new concept. It was kind of crazy. There were some serious plot holes with it. Like, don't get me wrong. I mean, there were plot holes, and honestly, there were kind of some stupid parts to it. But it, as a whole, it wasn't bad. The last Saw, I watched that in <laughs> using this kind of method that sometimes I do for really, really bad horror movies, which is like I fast forward through some of it. And if I feel like I've missed some plot, then I'll just go read the synopsis. And it was bad. It was so stupid. Anyways. But that might not have been his fault, even though he wrote the movie. But Pilgrim was not that bad. And the writing really wasn't that bad either. I mean, it was pretty good. I say not that bad. Like, it's a glowing review. It was fine. It was good. It was fine. (laughs) Not that bad. That's what I aspire to. I just want to be not that bad. The movie was good. (laughs) Yeah, so I'll okay. I'll I'm just gonna get into this movie now because there's not really much else to say about it. So okay, it opens up with this. There's a family 
at a dinner table. It is the mom and dad who are Anna and Shane. And then there is Cody. She's kind of the main character. Only the main character in that it mostly follows her. She is the daughter from Shane's first marriage. And so she's Anna's stepdaughter. And then there is Tate, who is the younger brother. And he is Anna's actual son. Okay. So... And they're all kind of like on their phones and the dad is always working. I'm honestly, it's like, it's very clearly like a social commentary on, you know, families that are constantly disconnected now that everyone's glued to their phones, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Not like us at all. Right. (laughs) Like how we watch TV while on our phones all the time. Anyways. Um, so basically the mom, Anna has this great idea where, so she just as a heads up, she's like this type of character who, She's really concerned about image. So she wants everyone to like look at her and be like, oh, that's the perfect family. So she decides to do this thing where she's going to hire these Pilgrim cosplayers to come and essentially reenact the first Thanksgiving with the family to kind of be just this group activity to bring everyone together. Wait, so just for the family, not like for the neighborhood or anything? No, it's just the family. Oh, boy. Yeah. It sounds... Part of me is like, I could see this being kind of cool in like a, an activity kind of a way, but part of me could see it being real bad too. Yeah. I mean, reenactments of problematic things in general are just kind of awkward. Uh, as someone who grew up in the deep South, I had to participate in a lot of civil war reenactments when I was a child. <laughs> a lot of them. Oh, of course he did. I mean, a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, I would have no interest in the reenactment part of it. The only reason that, to be honest, I say this sounds kind of interesting is because I think it would be kind of interesting to honestly learn, like, cooking techniques from back then. That's the only part of it that sounds kind of cool to me. It's kind of like, you know, when we were in Munich and we, like, made pretzels. Like, I could see that having an appeal, but the whole, like, Thanksgiving theme of it, no. Like, that Puritan culture, that, I have no interest in that. I mean, we would have been hanged. Yeah. I mean, if we were lucky. I don't know. That that was an oppressive culture. And there's still a whole part of this country trying to bring it back. So let's move on from that. Okay. So then they kind of set it up by doing the like wishbone on the turkey thing. And basically Tate and Cody do the wishbone And Cody's wish in her head is, I hope this whole thing backfires in your face. Like the pilgrim thing. So it's like, okay, well, clearly it is. That's fine. Because she wins the wishbone. Yeah. So anyways, okay. So the next day, there's this HOA meeting. And I'm only bringing this up because I hate HOAs. And this meeting is done so well. (laughs) And... Oh, God. Because as you know, I, I mean... I had a huge problem with my old HOA before we got this house, which obviously we do not have an HOA now. But when I was in my last condo, which you obviously knew of as well, my HOA was terrible. They hated my dog and they just gave me so many. It's just like a bunch of busybodies who just like harp on other people's shit. And like, I don't know, like, why can't you just live your own life and stop trying to ruin mine? Our main lesson here, boys, girls, ladies and gentle thems. Mind your own business. Yeah. I mean, my whole thing is it's like, 
if I'm not directly impacting your life, then just leave me be. Exactly. So, okay. So it's kind of funny because like Anna tells like some of the HOA ladies about this whole pilgrim idea and they're all like, oh, that sounds so amazing. And it's like all fake smiles and stuff like that. That's amazing. And then like afterwards they walk into the kitchen and Cody, she had like dropped something on the floor. So she was like picking it up. And so the women don't know that Cody's in there. And the women just start talking like mad shit about Anna because they were just being faked her face, which is like the most accurate representation of like HOA suburban living that I think I've seen in a movie in a long time. It's very mean girls like, oh my God, I love your skirts. <laughs> exactly. That is the ugliest effing skirt I have ever seen. It, yeah, exactly. So Cody's boyfriend, Finn, shows up. And I guess I'll just point out, too, that Cody is biracial, and actually so is Finn, but it is not ever addressed in the movie, other than the fact that there is a flashback to Shane's first marriage, and his first wife was a person of color. So Finn shows up, and basically Cody is like, this is awful, blah, blah, blah. In fact, actually what she says is, this is country club hellscape. I can smell the ranch from my bedroom, which is also a pretty accurate representation of suburban life. As you know, I'm not a fan of ranch dressing. Yeah, but do they really have ranch dressing at country clubs? I don't know. There is, I mean, this that whole like party scene opens up with her taking out this like crudite platter with like the ranch in the hollowed out red cabbage. <laughs> All right. My Nana made many of those. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those are kind of a blast from the past. I, I should... Never mind. I was going to say, I should point out, I loved my Nana very much, and she was not one of these people, but... Yeah. So the whole point of this scene is that there's ringing at the doorbell, and she opens it up, and it's two people in pilgrim outfits, and they have basically shown up early. And it is the two main pilgrims, Ethan and Patience, and they're basically like... We're here early because we have to set up for the feast. And Anna is like, okay, no problem. And Ethan is like, yeah, we also need to stay in your house and like like sleep here until Thanksgiving. And Anna's like, yeah, no problem. So that's a little unrealistic. Okay. I mean, if people showed up in pilgrim costumes and were like, we're here a couple days early. First of all, I would not answer the door. No, I mean, not unless they were, like, really hot. Yeah, but you don't get to just stay at my house. But, I don't know. Plus, it's, like, she doesn't ever ask them, like, for credentials or anything like that. Like, actually, that would have been... This does not happen in the movie. That would have been a great plot twist is if these weren't even, like, the enactors that she had hired. These were just, like, random psycho people that, like, knew that she had hired the people, so they show up early. That would have been a, a better thing to do, but that doesn't. that's not how this is. Oh, that's rude. All right. Carry on. <laughs> Okay, so anyway, so then there's a lot... I'm going to breeze through this movie, like, so much of this movie. But they basically, like, start getting ready. And so they're kind of, like, building a shed out in the back and doing all this building and, like, getting ready to, like, make Thanksgiving dinner. At one point, they... Cody comes home and Ethan had taken Tate out to go get berries. And Tate, uh, Tate the is who is the little brother, like, Cody walked in and Tate's like... We went berry picking just like the pilgrims and the Indians did. And Cody's like, yeah, I don't think that's how it worked. <sighs> and it's probably not. And then um, they're having dinner, not at Thanksgiving at one point, too. And Ethan is 
basically like giving this like story of Halloween. Ethan never. So the pilgrims never break character. Like they never act like they're not pilgrims from that Puritan time period. And so they're constantly talking about this stuff. The only time that it's kind of like a little bit funny is one time at dinner. He's talking. Ethan, the pilgrim guy, is talking about fishing off the Mayflower. And he says something about catching trout. And Cody's like, trout's a freshwater fish, you idiot. And he looks a little rattled from that. But he doesn't break his character. He just keeps talking. But then at one point, um, Ethan basically talks about like meeting the, quote, Indians. And Cody corrects him and is like, you mean First Nation tribes? And I think they're trying to make her out to be like this kind of like sassy brat that just talks back. But honestly, like she sounds like me. I mean, honestly, if people say problematic words, you should correct them. And I know like some people, maybe even some people listen to this may think, well, what's the big deal? It's just a word. It's not offensive. Words matter. Words do matter. And also my thing is, it's like, what's the big deal to just use the right word? Like... Is it that hard? Like, at one point, you learned to say Indian. So why don't you just learn to say the correct word of First Nation people? Or indigenous people. Or indigenous. Actually, you can learn many other words. You that got are just, a lot of options. Well, and it's just more accurate. Because obviously, they were called Indians because they thought that they had gone to India. Yeah. So it's like, why not just use a more appropriate, less offensive, also more correct word? I don't know. My thing about like people who are like, well, that's not the word that I want to use. The only justification for that, honestly, is because you just want to be stubborn and like, I don't know, edgy and prejudiced or something like that. You want to actively choose to be racist instead of accidentally being racist. That really is what it is. And I think like I don't think that they're I think they're making Cody out in the scene to be this kind of bratty person. But honestly, like you should correct people. And even if they're adults or authority figures if they say something problematic i don't think you should be ultra rude about it necessarily because if you ever react in an angry manner then you just get painted as like the angry overreacting person but i think that to just correct people is right no matter who it is and don't let it slide like don't be like oh well it was that person i guess it's not a big deal no it's always a big deal that's my that's my take on that this is like the after school special show I mean, a little bit, but I think that, I think that sometimes, like, you know, we talk about these horror stories, and sometimes I think I give them a pass because I'm like, whatever, I'm just not going to harp on it, especially when they are older, but I think, like, in more modern times, I think it's totally fine to call things out and be like, this is, like, a real problem, and this, obviously, this story, to me, was not a real problem. I just wanted to point out that I think that they're almost using it as a character flaw that she's like correcting people and be like, don't call them Indians. But like, I don't, I didn't find that flawed at all. In fact, I thought it made her character more likable and made me want to be friends with her. So that's that. Okay. When do people start dying? (laughs) So I'm going to fast forward to when people start dying. (laughs) Yay. Basically at one point, the first sign that something's wrong is patience is actually staying with Finn and his mom because I don't, really know why but she is patience ends up poisoning finn's mom with some tea and then when finn finds the mom dead patience is like turning butter but it's like blood coming out and you don't know what it is and it never really explains what it is but finn tries to run away and they catch him and then they kill finn as well and all i could think of was that poison poisoning seems like a pretty fitting way for somebody named patience to kill somebody 
I don't know. So then after that, Patience actually moves back in with Anna and essentially says that Finn's mom went on a bender and took Finn and like left town. So they're just like not around anymore. So then then the movie starts to escalate like very quickly. Like it goes from zero to 100 pretty fast. Yay. Yeah. And essentially they the family starts thinking that the pilgrim people are acting real weird and then more pilgrims show up like six of them and they're all in full pilgrim costume and they're like real fucking weird looking so then the parents get a little bit suspicious and they're like we're just gonna leave with the kids but then the pilgrims are like oh no you're not so they end up capturing the family they put them in the stocks like they had built stocks in the back of the house oh my god so they put them in stocks and they're like whipping them and they brand anna at one point and then Cody base Cody was gone. I don't know at school or something. She ends up going to her to Finn's house, finding his dead body. Runs home. She frees her parents. Ultimately, Shane, the dad, is killed by the pilgrims. It's pretty elaborate, but he's killed and beheaded. Then they tie Anna and Cody to chairs and call them. They basically they're talking like pilgrim people the whole time, right? Yeah. And they basically he says this thing and they call them cucking stools. So. We're going to have a little PSA on what a cucking stool is, which I feel like you may know because it's like a history thing. Hold on. Who's tied to it? Anna and Cody. So okay. mother and daughter. Well, stepdaughter. Yeah. Keep going. So a little history on what cucking stools are, because I honestly did not know what they were. I mean, I'm not like a huge history buff or anything. So cucking stools or ducking stools were chairs formerly used as punishment for disorderly women, scolds, which are apparently people accused of being troublesome and angry who are habitually chastised, and dishonest tradesmen also. Cucking stools were sort of this way of punishing these people. Also, at some point, it specifically states nags, like women who nag too much. Oh, boy. Essentially, when I looked them up, it kind of came down to they were... It had something to do with chamber pots, but there were stools with like a chamber pot beneath it that they would tie these women to for like long periods of time as punishment and you just have to basically like be forced in this chair and then sometimes the chairs had wheels and they would like wheel you around town in this chair that you were like literally unable to move or do anything and you were having to like really just like shit into this pot below it i mean it it sounded i mean honestly it sounds like something the puritans would do yep sounds about right and so that evolved into a ducking stool which Historians are not sure exactly when ducking stools first came into fashion, if you want to put it that way, but there is evidence that they may have not actually been in use until Tudor times, but it could have been before that. But ducking stools were an evolution. They are the chair that's attached to the giant wooden beam that they would hold the person over water and duck them into the water. Yeah. For like the witching, witchiness stuff. Yes. Yeah. The witching, witchy, witchingness stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, so Anna is tied to a regular stool, but Cody is tied to an actual ducking stool because they have a pooler in the backyard. And so she ends up getting ducked a couple times and they give the speech about how they want everyone to be grateful for what they have and how like the family is so ungrateful and they're doing this to prove that they don't appreciate everything they have. Anyways. Okay. So then we get to Thanksgiving dinner. So basically they tell Anna and, um, Cody afterwards after they're like real sorry about things that they have to help prepare prepare Thanksgiving dinner so they do that there's kind of this like craziness where they escape it for a little while and there's a chase scene then they're caught again 
Then they're all sitting down to have dinner. They bring out the dinner and like is very common, they are eating Shane. But it's not even like a surprise. Like they it's like Shane's head is underneath one platter and then like basically like a torso. Like you see a rib cage, a burnt up cooked rib cage is like underneath the other thing. And they're like trying to force the meat from the rib cage like into their mouths and stuff. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. This is almost the end of the movie. I'm not going to tell you exactly how it ends, but it is kind of a glorious scene because this is also around the point in the movie where it starts to become a little bit more, it stops taking itself so seriously. Like some of the scenes, like some of the blood scenes, like there's a part where one of the pilgrims has to projectile vomit blood, right? And it's so clear that it's like that thing where they hold the hand to the mouth and it's like coming out of a tube. And it is so much blood. And it's clear that that's what he's doing. But if done right, that's actually pretty funny. Yeah. And it was done in a very, very funny way. Also, I'll point out now, the music in this movie has been very good. And the music of this scene was really, really good and really well done. The soundtrack is actually pretty cool and really added to the atmosphere of it. So the last scene, um, I'll say that Anna, Cody, and... The younger brother are basically all in the, involved in the last scene. I won't tell you which ones of them survive or not, or which ones of the pilgrims survive or not, but it's just pretty glorious. That's all I'll say. You should watch this movie for the last scene. And if you think it is kind of slow until it really just ramps it up, because it's kind of like there's this weird, like, what is wrong with these pilgrim people atmosphere to it, but it's not unenjoyable. And then once you hit that last dinner scene, it's like, Good. It's almost like society, how it's like the whole, except honestly, the first part of it is more enjoyable than society, but yeah, how it's kind of slow build up. And then all of a sudden you're just like, whoa, it's not as shocking as that, but it was good. There's no fisting scene. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just don't feel like fisting is used nearly enough as a plot device in movies these days. You could have just stopped that sentence after enough. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So obviously I'm not going to say the ending. Final thoughts on this movie. It, like I said, had a great soundtrack. The atmosphere is good. I did like the comedic elements to it. It's not slapsticky or anything like that. I wouldn't even call this a comedy horror. It just has a hint of comedy at the end. And honestly, I thought it was enjoyable. Like, obviously, this is, we air our episode on Saturday. So you have until Thursday to really get into the Thanksgiving spirit. And I would definitely put this in your rotation for this week because it will get you into the Thanksgiving spirit, but also just entertain you with a lot of gore and a lot of weirdness. So yeah, that's Pilgrim. So watch this instead of a Macy's parade. Yeah, absolutely. There's not nearly enough blood and gore in a Macy's parade. I've never been, I never watched that parade, to be honest. Not growing up, not as an adult. I don't even know if they're having it this year. The first time I ever saw any, this is true. The first time I ever saw any part of a Macy's parade is literally when I was at, I think your parents' house. And they had it on. Oh, that's because we watched it every year like clockwork. And I hated it because I thought it was boring. Yeah. I mean, it was, I didn't find it that interesting, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. I mean, it was something to look at. Anyways, that's enough about Pilgrim. That's enough about movies. Let's hear about the book that you're going to talk about. Awesome. 
Get excited and buckle up because I've got another vintage horror for you, Peaches, and you know that that means we are in for a wild ride. Uh, So today I am bringing you the 1985 horror fiction classic, When Darkness Loves Us by Elizabeth Engstrom. Ooh, is it a love story? Kinda. Is it a pedophilia story? Possibly. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it might be involved. You'll understand why I'm like genuinely unsure uh, (laughs) if it is or not. Uh, But it's no less disturbing. So this is also, just like The Nest was, a part of the paperbacks from hell re-release that Grady Hendrix and Will Erickson facilitated with Valancourt. Calling it a book is a bit deceptive because like way back when I did The Small Hand and Dolly, this one is actually two novellas. Except it doesn't tell you on the cover. No, I mean, there's it literally is just a regular cover. It doesn't have two titles or anything. Yeah. So imagine my shock and dismay. Uh, I'm primarily going to focus on the first one, which is the titular story. I love that word. By the way, gentle listener. Uh, this is the latest in the day we've ever recorded, and this is a wild ride of a book. So I've been drinking absinthe. So we're just going to see how this one goes. Yes, you are. And I'm drinking coffee. Anyway, the cover is, frankly, unnerving as hell. Uh, it's a doll with the center of its face smashed in. And that's it. That's all it needs to be. Yeah, it's it's also, obviously, I mean, people will see this when we post because we always have a picture of it. But this doll, it's like... Kind of this like old timey doll. It's a disturbing and it's disturbing the way that it's meshed in. Anyways, let's move on. It's looking at me. It'll actually make sense. But anyway, it was done by Jill Bauman because I'm trying to give credit to my cover artists when I know who they are. Uh, let's take a look at the blurb, which keeping in mind that I did not know at first that this was two novellas instead of one long novel. This blurb was very confusing. <laughs> Sally Ann and Martha, two women searching for love, finding terror. During a terrifying storm, a gentle childhood is destroyed by a twisted man who promises love but delivers nightmare. In the lightless depths of an underground labyrinth, unseen creatures lie in wait for an innocent traveler, cold skeletal hands stretched out in welcome. There is horror in darkness, horror made greater when darkness loves us. So a really quick point out here that the blurb goes back and forth between the two stories and tells us absolutely nothing about either of them. <laughs> it just sounds like it's it's like deliberately being a creepy blurb. It's also like, <laughs> I don't know, man who pro- promises us love but delivers us, delivers us darkness. Is that what it says? Delivers nightmare. Delivers nightmare, yeah. It's like my ex. Anyway, continue. Also, again, like it says nowhere that it was two novellas. So imagine my shock when I'm wrapping up the storyline of the first one and I'm only 65 pages in and I'm like, (laughs) what the fuck is happening here? All right. So Sally Ann is our main character in When Darkness Loves Us, the first of our two novellas. She is 16. She is freshly married and as the author takes great care to not so subtly less know, she is very horny for her new husband. (laughs) Oh my God. How old is her husband? They, I assume, are about the same age. I don't remember. God, married at 16. Can you even imagine? It's in some, like, teeny tiny country 
farm area. Still. Yeah. I there's just like a really unnecessary part on like page two where she's thinking about the the exploration of sensations that they've shared together and like has to cross her legs because she's getting all like tingly. I mean, are you even really having good sex at 16? That just never mind. We're not talking about this. Yeah. Move on. You're cutting that. All right. <laughs> so she's on the family property and she wanders into some tunnels while she's exploring. And while she's down there, her husband shuts and locks the doors. What? Yep. And because she's a delicate Midwestern rose, she faints from the absolute terror. (laughs) Of course she does. Uh, And here's where shit starts to get weird. But we're only a few pages in, you say. And oh, I know. I know. So I really want to mention here. Uh, That her main motivation for going deeper into the tunnels in the first place and not just like staying by the door and constantly banging on it for help is because she needs to pee. And heaven forbid she pee near the entrance because her husband might smell it when he comes to rescue her. And God forbid a woman have bodily functions and be more than a wop on legs. Wait, so she's concerned about the same husband that locked her in here for no reason smelling the aroma of pee when he comes to rescue her. I mean, I'd be more concerned about how he's going to feel when I stab him in the face. It was an accident. How is that an accident? Oh, did he not know she was in there? Yes. Okay. I should have clarified. I thought you meant he did it on purpose, and I was like, "Mm -mm." No, like he was working the land and was like, oh, why are these tunnel doors open? Someone might wander in and get lost. I should close them. Okay. That, for everyone's safety. That's, I guess, a little more acceptable. I mean, like you... My first reaction is this is just a toxic person because that's... Well, many people are toxic, but in these books, I feel like that's how people are. Anyways, continue. Don't worry. He makes poor choices later. So she wanders a lot, and I don't know if this is intentional or not, I'm going to give the author the benefit of the doubt. But you don't really have a sense of how much time is passing, much like Sally wouldn't because she's trapped underground where there's no light. It's like one second she was looking for a good pee spot and the next she notices she's wasting away. But wait, not for long, because before she got locked in those tunnels when she and her new husband were exploring sensations, she found herself pregnant. Hmm. She's also terrified by a splashing in an underground lake and decides that it's like this monster. Uh, So she refuses to go back past the lake. So the steps that go back to the surface are now on the opposite side of the lake. And so she won't go because there's a monster. That's fair. I mean, water is scary. Yeah, but if it's just splashing in the lake, it's probably not getting on you if you're on dry land. True, but this is an underground lake? Yes. I could say, wait, what is her light source in this? She doesn't have one. I mean, it would be pitch black. Yes. That would be scary to me. That's the darkness that is loving you. Yeah, I mean, that would scare me. Pitch black and there's a lake and you hear splashing. That's scary. It's a little unnerving, but the fact that like she won't go back past it to get to the door to bang on it for help. Yeah, I mean, she shouldn't have gone further in in the first place, so. But oh my God. Her husband might smell her pee. Anyway, so I guess we're stuck here. And you asked about a light source, but what does she do for food, you ask? The ghost of her ex-boyfriend feeds her slugs. Wait. (laughs) I'm sorry, what? 
Where did that come from? Uh, she had like an ex-boyfriend who went off to war and died. And he just comes back to feed her slugs? Yes. Why slugs? I don't know. Ew. How, how long is she in this thing? We'll get there. Okay. Now let's jump forward a bit because this roller coaster is relentless and I want us to keep going. Sally Ann's son, once she gives birth, by the way, the ghost of her ex-boyfriend acts as the midwife. Wait, she gives birth in the tunnel? Yes. Okay. I told you, there's really no sense of time here. It moves very quickly. Again, while she's giving birth to her son, Clint, her ex-boyfriend's ghost acts as midwife and helps her through it. Okay. Her son, Clint, is swimming, presumably in different water from the lake that is the one with the monster in it. And when he gets out, he's hungry, so he just latches right on. Wait, latches on to what? Breast is best, my love. Oh. Even though we don't know how much time has passed, but we do know that he is taller than her shoulder. Wait, this this is her kid? Yes. This is her son, who is now taller than her shoulder. That's the only like height reference we get as to how big he is, and is breastfeeding. I also do want to make a side note here. I said breast is best. Breastfeeding is an extremely personal choice that no one but the parent doing the feeding has any say in. I just wanted to make the joke. Yeah. So this book is just like, time is not a thing. Nope. Interestingly enough, you know, there is a theory that time is kind of a construct and that like hours and minutes are sort of social constructs. And and anyway, I, I don't want to get into it. But when I was back in the day studying linguistics, it was kind of an interesting thing about time and putting language to it. Anyway, I'm cutting all of this. Continue. So shortly after this, uh, Sally Ann decides that she wants to return to the surface. Oh, now she wants to return to the surface. Yes, this is this is when she is chosen. Uh, this makes Clint very angry. He runs off. He would have to be like, wait, Clint is the son. Yes, he would have to be this like, what are they called from the time machine? Morlocks or something? I think so. Like this, like underground dwelling drow elf pale af blind person yep with no formal education no but she tried to educate him as much as she could okay in the dark (sighs) i just can't get over the like their life in this darkness and it's just like okay she's just making the best of a bad situation Like, it's just funny because it's like she gets locked in this tunnel, right? She doesn't want to walk past this lake because it's creepy. So she's like, well, this is just my life now. I just live in the dark tunnel. I mean, that is basically how it went. You know what's really funny? We're only like a third of the way through. Oh, God. Okay. Uh, So she decides that she wants to go back up to the surface. This makes Clint angry. He runs away. She doesn't want to go past the lake. So she's looking for a different place to go and she ends up finding like a well shaft that like the side of it has started to like rot away into the tunnel so she's able to get into the actual shaft Mm -hmm. um and she shimmies up the well shaft magically not falling even when she takes naps i have no idea how long it takes her to get to the top of the well shaft because she talks about like running out of food while she's in it and like sleeping and waking up covered in two inch cockroaches. Okay, this author has no concept of time. No, it's just not there. 
But she does get to the surface. Her mom happens to be standing by the well when she like breaks through the rotting wood of the lid and takes care of her. And it turns out that she's been gone for 20 years. Please see the previous statement about breastfeeding. Her 19-year-old son was... I mean, that is not the most shocking thing about this thing, this movie to me. I mean, it's that's weird, but she's been living off slugs for 20 years. Also, I'm sorry. This is there's only so much my mind can tolerate in terms of absurdity, and this has broken past that. That's cool. We're at the halfway point. So it is at this point that we find out how Clint is coping. And he is coping with his mother leaving by furiously masturbating to the thoughts of hurting her. <laughs> Wait, that's like... <laughs> okay. That's... um, Okay. The author actually goes to great detail of how vigorously he is masturbating while thinking of hurting her. He also catches fish and tortures them, both... And this is noted in the book. Like, I'm not just making this up as a joke. This is noted. Uh, both the masturbation and the torture give him a similar joy. Yeah. That's like an early warning sign of a serial killer. Breastfeeding until 19 probably doesn't help either. Anyway. <sighs> oh, my God. It just keeps going. So, Michael, Sally Ann's husband, doesn't recognize her because the old girl looks rough. Yeah, 20 years underground. She's 36 now. Okay. And he's remarried. Well, that's awkward. To her sister. <laughs> well, that's real awkward. And he has three kids. He's got twins, and then he's got a little girl named Mary. And of course, the fact that he did not like recognize her and immediately be like, oh my gosh, my long lost love, Sally Ann is really upset. So what's a girl to do? Probably kill him. No, she steals Mary and goes back to the tunnels. <laughs> okay she kidnaps her like niece slash like husband's child her daughter niece exactly do you need a breather because i'm not done no it sounds great all right so another span time of passes and mary the little stolen child is now all grown up and has three kids with her half-brother clint this mo- so this is like half this book and it literally spans like what 60 years? Oh. It's not even half. That's like a 230 I think page book. The first novella is only 60 pages. <laughs> this was a relentless balls to the wall wild ride. Hmm. I'm talking like I call it a roller coaster. There was no slow incline. It was just up and down, up and down, up and down. Okay. So some more stuff happens. I don't want to ruin the climax of Sally Ann's story. Plus, it's not the most outlandish part. And our story ends with Clint thinking about his kids and about amassing an incestuous mole people empire. (laughs) That's literally like he's just planning in his head like the continued propagation of his line using his children. I'm not gonna lie. That's weird. But that story sounds real stupid. Someone published that? What year was this published in? 1985. Okay. Uh, That makes a little bit more sense. There's even a part in the introduction where apparently when she was pitching it, uh, Elizabeth Angstrom 
read the story in its entirety to like an agent and a publisher and stuff. And they were like, oh my God, this is so amazing, but we can't publish something that short. We need you to add something to it to make it novel length. And that brings us to our next novella, Beauty Is. Oh man. See, to be honest, that story, the When Darkness Loves a Story, if it were novel length and span time appropriately, it would have probably been okay. But the fact that it goes through so much time so quickly, it just seems like whatever. Anyways, okay, so let's talk about this new one. Beauty is. Our main character is Martha. And Martha has a trauma-based developmental impediment. I tried to say that as correctly as possible. Basically, she is not very communicative. And her cognitive processes are that of a young child. Okay. Also, if you look closely at the cover, uh, the doll has Martha on it. I think on the dress. Anyway, uh, Martha also has a very disfigured nose because she was born without one, which explains the smashed-in nose of the doll. Okay. She is super, super kind, though. And we'll get back to her, but I'm going to do her backstory first. And the story alternates chapters between, like, modern times and then Martha's parents, but I refuse to do that to you. (laughs) Uh, So I'm going to tell it to you chronologically. Martha's parents were Harry and Fern... And I'm not going to waste your time with too much of the backstory of that, except basically Fern has magical healing powers and Harry is an extremely religious misogynist who, and I cannot stress this enough, does not deserve her. Okay. He basically treats her like an object the entire time. And the only time he views her healing powers in any sort of positive light is when people are admiring it because he's like, oh, it's my wife's healing powers and she is mine so therefore those powers are mine so therefore this praise is mine like it's super misogynistic and terrible so when martha is born with a nose harry decides that it is punishment because it was god's will that all of those people that fern healed were sick and hurt and that her healing them was defying god so he has punished them by giving them a child that has no nose yeah i don't think that's how that works but okay Fun, like, side note, mention of a very brief scene. Although she was born without a nose, she did have a super thin membrane over the hole. And when she cries for the first time, the membrane bursts and splatters Fern with blood. It's fucking disgusting. I just wanted you to have that mental image. Speeding through, Fern gets a skin graft plastic surgery operation done to reconstruct Martha's nose, but it grows back weird and Harry is disgusted. Fern goes into town during a storm to heal some people, and when she comes back, Harry is gone, and Martha is in a pile of hay and completely unresponsive. Okay. Also, here's, an, like, going back to our issues with the blurb, Harry never promised love because he called Martha a monster since she was born. But he certainly delivered a nightmare. Mm, yeah. But this is obviously early on in the story, right? So some, so what, like Fern heals her? No, actually, Fern's healing powers don't work on her. So Fern, first of all, Fern isn't able to heal her nose. And when the plastic surgery skin graft starts to go wrong, she's not able to heal that. She is somehow able to use her healing powers to like go into Martha's mind. But there is a dog guarding the door that reveals her trauma. Okay. I'll talk about the trauma at the end. So back to the present day, Martha is 54, and she's still mostly unresponsive 
uh, verbally. Both of her parents are dead. Before Fern died, she called in all of her favors from healing the town to make sure that Martha would be taken care of. So she left Martha a good deal of money, but basically she was like, she went to the general store owner and was like, when I die, here's how I need you to help take care of my child. And like arranged for Martha to have her hair cut and things like that. So Martha will meander into town and get her stuff. She really likes baking bread as a pastime. Okay. But one day she ends up wandering into a bar and she flashes a lot of cash because she doesn't know better. And a very kind young man by the name of Leon helps her and he drives her home and offers to help kind of fix up her house. But meanwhile, a man named Leslie decides he's going to rob Martha. Leslie ends up teaming up with a woman named Priscilla who cuts Martha's hair and they plan to rob her together. Meanwhile, Leon and Martha develop a romance. Um, okay. Despite him being 30 years younger at the age of 24, uh, they do end up having sex. But I will say, in the defense of this book, and there's not much to defend about it, it is a scene during which we are in Martha's head, and I feel like that is to show that although she is verbally unresponsive, she is aware enough about what she is doing that it is consensual. It's actually a very sweet scene. And the next morning, it's like a fog has lifted, and over the next few days, Martha becomes neurotypical. <laughs> because she has sex? Must have been some bomb-ass dick. Okay. Yeah, I don't think that's how that works at all, but sure. Get it, Martha. I mean, I'm glad that she enjoyed discovering her body, I guess. I think what really is supposed to be happening here is like the intimate love helps her push past her trauma, yada, yada, yada. But a bit more time passes and Leslie and Priscilla come and attack Martha after Leon leaves the house one night. And the fear reminds her of the trauma of the night her father tried to bury her with a two-headed calf. Wait, but why? Because Martha was a monster, and the two-headed calf was a monster, so they should be buried together. That's not where I saw this going at all. But that was the trauma. That's what happened before Fern came home and found young Martha in a haystack. And as a result, Martha reverts back to being unresponsive. In the scuffle, Priscilla is accidentally killed. And when Leon gets home, he finds the dead Priscilla and he finds a re-traumatized Martha who has ripped off Priscilla's nose and put it on her own face. Ooh. The end. (laughs) No, that's seriously the end. Like the very final like paragraph is Martha turning around with Priscilla's nose on her face. I'm actually okay with the ending like that. I don't, I don't need any big wrap-up. The little crazy ending. So, both stories were kind of train wreck roller coasters, uh, but they were so much fun. When I originally read it, I gave the collection as a whole three out of five slug snacks, but I think looking back on it, I want to bump that up to four because it was a fun time. <laughs> it sounds okay. I mean, it sounds ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, it's not like I was reading it for the realism. (laughs) Yeah, obviously. But where else are you going to find an incestuous mole people empire? And dick so good that it heals your trauma? Mm. We've all been there. Anyway, (laughs) that being said, I feel like this is another one of those times where it's kind of like I know the answer to this. But if you were in either of these stories... I guess. Would you end up getting killed? I have two answers. 
And when the darkness loves us, I think I would because I don't have a ghost ex to feed me slugs. True. That whole, I just, I can't even with that. What about in the the noseless girl one? Beauty is. Uh, Priscilla is the main death in there. And the only reason she dies is because she's trying to attack Martha in the first place. So honestly, no, I don't think I would die. I would just be minding my own business in that story. And I would honestly probably just be one of the townspeople helping Martha because my mother raised me to be a decent fucking human. Would you die in Pilgrim? Um, I don't know that I would ever get in that situation. Okay, so I guess I'll have to look at it from a couple perspectives real quick. I would never invite somebody like that over to my home because, one, I don't care about Thanksgiving. Two, I certainly don't care about pilgrims reenacting Thanksgiving in some fake whitewashed American history way. But if it was like I was the kid and like my parents were arranging that. I mean, with all due respect, I could see your mother doing something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Uh, well, yes and no. My mother takes food way too seriously to allow like somebody else to make some like old school style Thanksgiving. This, this is very true. But I don't, there's, to be honest, there's not a lot of people who die, but there is a lot of violence in it. So I don't necessarily know that I would die, but I would probably have a real rough time of it. So I'll just say that. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to rate, review, subscribe. We get really excited every time we see that that has happened. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Second to Die Pod, and also on Goodreads at Second to Die Pod, where you can see what I am reading next. You can also email us at Second to Die Pod at gmail.com. Really, any questions you have, uh, concerns, comments, or if you want to suggest us a movie or book, we would be happy to get that from you. Anyway, I hope everyone has a lovely Thanksgiving if you choose to celebrate it. Uh, And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.